I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to The Andy Rowe Show. Matthew Griffin's job is to predict the future. He's hired by the United Nations, governments around the world and major tech companies to tell them what the next 50 years will look like. He joined us last season and it was one of our most listened to episodes yet. He's back to tell us more about what the future has in store, like flying taxis, underground skyscrapers, floating cities, vaccines and lots more mind-blowing stuff. I hope you enjoy the episode. Before we start, a massive thank you to our sponsor this week, Sons, who helped make this show happen. One in four people suffer from gut health issues like IBS, abdominal pain, gas and bloating. Gut health is vital to your general wellness, with 70% of your immune system located there. It's also linked to mental health, improved sports performance and general well-being. So if you have gut health issues or just looking to optimize your gut health, Sons have the solution. Sun's live bacteria supplement is clinically proven to treat digestive troubles and improve your gut health. It's backed up by over 50 clinical trials. I've been using it and I can't speak highly enough of the difference it's made. Check it out at suns.co.uk and use the code ANDY25 to get 25 quid off your first order. Your gut will thank you and you'll also be supporting the podcast and the work we do, which is always much appreciated. Matt Griffin, thanks for coming back on the show. Hey, well, thanks for having me. What have you What have you been up to since we last spoke? Lots. So, uh, I mean, on the one hand, I've been working with the United Nations on helping solve some of the United Nations SDGs. So there are about sort of 16 or 17 of those. So What are, what are SDGs? So SDGs, uh, Sustainable Development Goals. So if you think of all the world's largest challenges, so things like solving poverty, solving energy, solving equality, solving water, yeah, et cetera, et cetera, yeah. et cetera. Those are, those are the SDGs. So they came together in about 2015. They run to about 2030. And uh, at the moment, the United Nations is making some decent progress along with other organizations across most of those SDGs, but there's still a huge amount of work to do. So I've been heavily involved in that. How's London's water going? Because isn't, isn't, the, isn't there a problem with the aquifers in London? Oh, yeah. So when you have a look at London's aquifer, typically it's being drained. 50% of London's water usage actually comes from the aquifer. And it's been sinking and sinking and sinking. Now, on the one hand, basically, that creates a variety of different problems because when you start draining aquifers and when they aren't refilled by natural rainwater, you start getting subsidence. So when you have a look at Jakarta, for example, Jakarta is now subsided as an entire city by one and a half metres in about the past 40 years. What do you mean subsided? Gone sunk. Sunk. Yeah. One sunk. and a half metres. But from a London perspective, it's estimated by kind of like the United Nations and others that London would run out of water in about 2040. So London's population is growing. Um, 2040? That's not Which, away. well, it surprised me because, you know, when you start having a look at the cities, basically, that are due to come under water stress, basically, in the next sort of 20 years... Yeah, you know, you're kind of expecting, say, you know, Bangalore or, you know, places in Sri Lanka, mm. basically, or Mexico, basically, or Guatemala or Latin America or wherever it happens to be. 
when you start digging into London's water situation, London is actually in the top 30 cities that will have water shortages and water scarcity in the future. And when you have a look at water, you know, we all typically think that it's actually this human right, you know, which it, on the one hand it kind of is. But I was in uh, South Africa in Cape Town in 2018 when they were approaching what we call day zero. And day zero was the point in time where South Africa was going to run out of water. You know, nothing coming out of the taps, gone. On the one hand, it was really weird basically being in a place where you actually have to wash in a bucket. Yeah, so has South Africa run out of water? So Cape Town specifically. So they avoided it, but they avoided it by essentially rationing water in a military-style fashion. Uh, that caused riots, it caused civil unrest. People basically who were trying to wash their cars to make, to make money, you know, so for their livelihoods were actually being arrested by the police. Mid-2018, they're about 70-ish days from running out of water. So Cape Town specifically. They did water rationing. I say thanks to water rationing, they managed to reduce overall water consumption by 50% within the space of about three months. But that's where everyone was starting to take water out of Bowser's on the streets and all that kind of stuff. Mm. That pushed day zero back by about a year. And now Cape Town is okay. But if water use levels start getting back to where they were before day zero, back to sort of old levels, they'll head straight back into it again because they're still in drought conditions. Extreme weather events basically are still drawing, you know, are still putting pressure basically on their, their water resources and systems. And yeah, that was sort of quite stark, actually being in a city, in a country basically where there's no water. Do you think that's what's coming at London? No, so London, well, so you've always got to be very careful. I mean, so with London, basically it's, let's face it, there would be, a couple of different solutions. So you can actually use desalination, but desalination is still expensive than anything else. When you actually have a look at the at California, California kind of acts as a little bit of a model basically for London. Uh, they've recently just put a bill through the Senate to invest $750 million in building out new water infrastructure. Because one of the problems that you have basically is if you're in a water scarcity situation today, you can solve it, but you need to build stuff. And it can take a decade to build stuff, you know, such as water treatment plants, water recycling plants. You know, when we have a look at some of the uh, countries over in Africa, there's uh, sort of Namibia is quite famous because they actually recycle over 25 to 50 percent of all of the water that's used. But the, the irony basically with some of these water recycling solutions is, you know, when you go and have conversations with people in America and say, by the way, uh, you know, there's, there's a water shortage, you know, and they go, yeah, we know that, you know. And you go, do you like it? They go, no, don't like that. And go, well, one of the solutions we have is to take your toilet water, recycle it, filter it, and then push it back through your taps. And they go, oh, I don't want to drink, I don't want to drink stinky toilet water. And it's like, mm. no, but it's all filtered. So now you have that cultural issue because from a civilization perspective, if you go to people, say, in London and say, right, we've got a solution to your water crisis in 2040 and it means that you're going to end up having to drink recycled water and then people go well, what does that mean and you go well it's the water from your toilets and everything else they just go i'm not going to drink that and then they go and pick up some evian mm. yeah so you so yeah. it's a a kind of sort of multi-sided issue but yeah. um as we've sort of seen here you know, with namibia one of the initiatives that they have is they test the water every four hours and they publish all the water safety rankings and metrics on the websites. So if you want to know whether or not the water is actually safe, then you can just look it up. 
And the reason why they do that is because if people don't trust the quality of the water, then in Namibia, bearing in mind it's landlocked, it literally is in the middle of a desert, it has, it's not next to any natural river courses or anything like that, you'd end up with a city that basically dies. Speaking while we're on the topic of water, let's, let's look at the ocean. Yeah. Because that's, that's quite topical at the moment. Um, there's been numerous documentaries out, Seaspiracy. Um, yeah. We interviewed the captain of Sea Shepherd as well. And they, the, the overwhelming theme being that it's in a pretty dire condition. Yeah. What's your view on the ocean at the moment? How bad is it? Is it irreversibly, irres, irreversibly damaged? That word. Yeah. Can it, can it be fixed? What, yeah. Where are we at with the ocean at the moment? Yeah, so my background, see a lot of people don't know this, but my background is I'm actually a marine biologist and oceanographer by my background. So it's, it's been a passion of mine basically for a very long time, along with general sort of conservation. Now, when you have a look at the ocean, you know, firstly, basically, we typically think of the ocean really as just this giant place, basically, that we're, we can just continue to dump vast sums of stuff into and it'll just keep sucking it up and mm. sucking it up and sucking it up and eventually basically anything that sort of falls through down to the abyssal plains basically will end up being ground ground away by the tectonic plates and it'll end up just becoming lava coming out of a volcano again so we kind of think you know if you look at it you sort of think from a littering perspective you know the ocean is technically just a really large, giant incinerator that takes millions of years to incinerate all our rubbish, but you know, problem goes away. When you actually have a look at the sort of the water itself, you know, the oceans are facing multiple problems on multiple fronts. So the first basically is that they're heating up. Now the ocean temperatures have increased by about one to one and a half degrees Celsius over around the past 40, 50 years, basically which, and that does depend where you measure it and everything else. Doesn't seem like a lot. No, doesn't. Uh, and that's the sort of issue, basically, you know, with a lot of these, with a lot of these climate challenges, basically we're facing numbers that look quite small. Okay. So for example, a 1.5 degrees Celsius increase in the temperature of the oceans doesn't sound very big. If we increase your body temperature by a couple of degrees, the proteins basically in your body don't function properly and they have a much, much harder time fighting disease. From an oceanic perspective, if the temperature of the water was minus 0.5 degrees Celsius, bearing in mind that seawater has got a, a lower freezing point than that, but just as an example, yeah, if the temperature of the water is minus 0.5 degrees Celsius, you've got ice. If the temperature of the water basically is plus 0.5 degrees Celsius, you've, got, you've water. got water. Now, from an ocean perspective, as the oceans heat up, this kind of creates multiple issues because on the one hand, you start melting ice. And when you have a look at the amount of freshwater reserves that we actually have locked in ice, three, around two and a half-ish percent of all global water is in ice. So you end up with sea level change, you know, which Miami doesn't like because Miami is flooding more and more and more and everything else. But those small temperature increases also have an impact on marine life. So, for example, if you have a look at corals, if you raise the temperature of the Great Barrier Reef by just a couple of degrees, you end up with massive coral bleaching events. You end up with a dead reef. When you look at different areas around the world, and they all have the, they all have different problems because of yeah. the ocean, right? Hmm. And London's no different, yeah. is it? Like London, London's got an issue as far as the, the, the sea level, doesn't it? Uh, so it does. Uh, if you have a look at the, the Thames Barrier, they've been having to raise the Thames Barrier more and more and more. Um, when you actually have a look at climate change projections for sea level rises, typically kind of 2035, again, 2040, uh, you see anything around the Thames basically submerged. Um, anything so, around the Thames? Yeah. 
So typically, she's by like Hammersmith, Chiswick. Yeah, where we are all right the now. quality areas. So we're un- we're underwater. You're talking about you'll, the- you'll have beachfront here. That's it. You'll be on a oh, new marina, basically, if you keep this it. place hey, for the next sort of 10, 15 years. Yeah, so on the one hand, so by percentage area, about 20% of London would actually be underwater. Um, but then in addition to that, as sea levels rise, and as we, you have different tidal equinoxes, one of the biggest problems they're seeing in uh, Miami is you go to neighbourhoods and all the seawater is coming up through the drains. Yeah. yeah. In addition to that, the other sort of issues, basically, which a lot of the investors don't like, in fact, well, some of the investors don't like, some of the investors do like, is if you actually own, say, for example, big tracts of, say, Canary Wharf, and Canary Wharf starts not necessarily being flooded, but let's say gets a little bit too close to the water for comfort, uh, so that we end up with a couple of problems, the value of Canary Wharf goes from tens of billions of dollars of real, real estate to pretty much nothing overnight. We've mm. been seeing that in, again, we've been seeing that in Miami, we've been seeing that across Mexico, we've been seeing that through uh, Asia Pac, where property prices that were originally high because those properties were prime beachfront or they were in prime coastal locations or whatever it happens to be, all of a sudden they're worthless. So there are actually a number of global asset managers now that are actually using climate change projections, especially sort of in in America. And they're going, so if we buy all this really rubbish looking land and real estate, then in 2035, this should actually be the new tropical beachfront. So global asset managers that are going long on investments, kind of like a sort of 2030, 40, 50 year investment, are actually buying tracts of land that look completely worthless today, but they're trying to forward project and go, in the future, this will be prime real estate because all the billionaires are going to want to live basically on this nice bit of coast. Shit. Yeah. So you've got that, you know, or we could relocate New York. I mean, yeah, even New York are basically looking at building a $7 billion barrier to try to keep um, the water out of lower Manhattan because most of New York's wealth comes from Wall Street and Wall Street itself will be underwater in the next 20 years if they're not careful going back to what kind of london is going to look like as well like if it's going to be underwater (laughs) surely they're going to have to start building buildings in a different way yeah because you can't just keep building skyscrapers as you would next to the thames no if they're going to be getting uh, swallowed up. Yeah. So when you have a look at um, planning, um, so Japan, for example, have been seeing rising sea levels. They've also been seeing bigger monsoons. We just saw quite a lot of Germany and the North Rhine areas basically flooded. uh, And some of those, I mean, the the images of some of those floods basically were crazy. So this is kind of the the other thing with water. You've got places that don't have it. They've got places that now have too much because climate change is actually moving basically the global weather patterns around. When you start having a look at building regulations, building regulations really in the West, outside of, again, California, haven't really changed that much. And they aren't changing that much, basically, when it comes to trying to take into account the impact of you know, future, say, should we say, climate-related events, basically, or whatever you want, you want to call it. And part of the reason for that is because not that many people actually understand it. The other sort of main reason is it's far away. You know, 20 years, you know, if you've got a developer coming basically to City Hall in London and saying, look, what we want to do is we want yeah. to build a new skyscraper. We're willing to invest $2 billion 
building a new skyscraper in central London, and that skyscraper will then enable X amount of jobs, which for people who you can tax, which will then boost the London economy by X. Yeah, are you really going to be the, are you really going to be the uh, the councillor bus it turns around and goes, no, but you know, okay, we've brought in these new regulations to make it really hard and really expensive mm. for you to build your skyscraper because now you've got to underpin the foundations, you've got to put the foundations deeper. Uh, you've now got to have climate mitigation uh, sort of strategies in place. You've got to design your building different, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Just generally don't. You know, the, the Bloomberg building is an interesting one because it's car- it's completely carbon zero. It's even got those panels that change yep. um, depending on where the sun is to, yep. to, to maximize its like energy. Well, and this is it. So, I mean, but it cost a couple of billion dollars. And that's the other thing. When you start talking about... She would say climate proofing, but you know, that's a bit of an umbrella term. When you talk about climate proofing buildings for the future, you need to spend more money building the building. Mm-hmm. You have a look at London at the minute, you have a look at Seattle, you have a look at Vancouver. I was talking to people in Seattle and Vancouver the other day. You know, they've just experienced 50 degrees C heat. And when you have a look at the buildings in the UK, as temperatures start rising, how many buildings in the UK, from a home perspective, bear in mind we're all working from home now, have actually been built with climate change in mind. Yeah, all of the buildings that we're sitting in at the minute are typically designed to absorb heat because they're brick, mm. and then those bricks emit heat straight back into the house. You know, I mean, our house, which is a relative new build, last night, basically, it was 29 degrees C outside. It was 35 degrees C in the house with the windows open. Yeah, it's beautiful. You know? And so this is where, when you actually have a look at changing building regulations to try to accommodate basically for some of these new future realities. Japan's quite interesting because they're already changing building regulations. But one of the building regulations that they've changed is in response to hurricanes because they see more Category 5 hurricanes coming. And in Japan, they are now starting to talk about a Category 6 hurricane ranking because some of the Category 5 hurricanes they've seen have been so powerful, they're beating the Beaufort scale. So the Japanese government is currently putting through legislation to say, well, okay, if we think climate change in the future is going to be more extreme, we need to change building regulations now so that our future buildings are Category 6 hurricane resistant. Yeah, fair enough. Yeah, so there's those those sorts of things going on. But again, even having those conversations with politicians, regulators, policymakers, who realistically are elected basically to serve, you know, one, two, three, four, five years... You know, and then they go off and they do some of their their, their public-private duties is difficult. And again, that's sort of what the United Nations is sort of trying to sort of push in people's faces. Haven't they talked about building skyscrapers underground? They have, yeah. They're called reverse skyscrapers. And all they are is exactly that. You just take a, say, for example, you take Canary Wharf. You know, Canary Wharf goes from the surface of the earth and into the sky, turn it upside down, go from the surface of the earth down towards the center of the earth. When we talk about sort of building sort of underground skyscrapers, yeah, we've got new boring technologies coming through. You know, we've got Elon Musk basically with his boring co. You've actually got Google. So Google have actually invested, although they kind of deny it, but whatever. So Google have sort of have, have not, depending, you know, they're sort of being a little bit sensitive for bunch of weird reasons they've invested in a company over in the u.s that does hypersonic boring technology because when you have a look at boring technologies what's hypersonic 
Uh, well, I'll tell you. So, so a traditional layman, Earth movement. If you wanted too. to dig a tunnel today, so say for example, yeah. whether it's the English t- Channel Tunnel, whether it's Boris's Tunnel, basically from Scotland to Ireland or whatever it happens to be, um, most tunnel tunnel boring machines will move at about one centimeter an hour. They're really, really slow. They get overtaken by a snail. Mm. So if we want to do anything basically subterranean, you need to increase boring speeds. So that's what Elon Musk is doing with Boring Co. But with Google's boring technology, what they do is they fire, it's called a hypersonic technology because they fire projectiles at hypersonic speeds into the rock faces. That then pulverizes and vaporizes the rock face and allows them to start boring at 10 centimeters an hour. Uh, and all of a sudden, the cost of boring comes down. You know, if you look at Ellen's Las Vegas tunnels, you know, they cost about $35 million. Mm-hmm. You can't build a road, basically, for that amount of money for the same, for the same length that it's going to be. Mm. So this is where, yeah, you know, when we start talking about living, living underground, basically, yeah. you've got that. Other things that United Nations, basically, have sort of been um, approving. There's a company called Big. They produced a floating city concept called Oceanics. Yeah. Um, so now, basically, we actually have o- the United Nations approving ocean cities, and then we've got the Maldives government who have just approved the f- building of the world's first ocean-based city in Mali, uh, because in their case, you're talking about ocean-based, like it's being built in the on, ocean, in the ocean, yeah, on the well, it floats. in the ocean, on, yeah. on the ocean, in, yeah. in around the, but not on land at no. all. No. So imagine taking, I mean, yeah, these are, these are relatively small at the minute. You know, so typically these city, these floating cities will take about 20,000 people. So small, not small, but take, take, take a community of 20,000 people. So the houses, the infrastructure, the energy generation plants and systems, basically the shops, the malls and everything else now dump it into the middle of the ocean. That's it. Shit. And um, so, you know, so if people wanted to check it out, literally check out Oceanics, um, which they've got a funky design. We've got another company over in Miami that, are, that have been gr- granted permission by the U.S. government to now build floating, really floating communities in their case, not quite cities, but floating communities basically off of the Bahamas where they are looking to sell properties for anything from about $200,000 to a billion dollars, which is nuts. Um, and the U.N. approved the Oceanics concept about two years ago. Have you seen that city that they're building in Saudi Arabia, the line? Uh, oh, yeah. So Neom is Saudi Arabia's grand project. So when you have yeah. a look at MSB, on the one hand, every ruler basically wants a grand sort of legacy-defining project. And you can have a look at the line basically and think, well, on the one hand, that's that. The Saudi Arabian government uh, want to diversify away from oil into tourism and sort of other different sort of industry sectors. So they are spending over half a trillion with a T, so half a trillion dollars building this city called Neom. And Neom actually stands for new, so it's new, N-E. And then Om basically is, stands for future, which is the sort of Arabic right. basically for future. So Neom stands for new future. They touted it as the world's first linear city. You can think of as building a city on a giant line for everyone who's listening. Um, the first linear city was actually Brasilia. Yeah. Um, so that was developed in kind of like the 1950s, something like that. And what you do, you know, the Neom's um, premise basically is that you, if you took a ruler, and I talk about like a maths ruler, not, in a, yeah, not a kingdom ruler, and you drew a line from one side of Saudi, Saudi Arabia to the other, that would be a 170-kilometer line and then you just build along it. 
So they estimate basically that'll take in a couple of million people, spending half a trillion dollars on it. It's been designed in sort of cooperation with a whole variety of global consultancies, basically who, on the odd occasion, have to sort of question whether or not they need their heads checked because it comes complete with artificial moons um glow in the dark sand you know it's almost like yeah it's almost like the the, the it was yeah. almost like ksa basically went to a bunch of consultants um some of which actually then turned to me ironically but i wasn't responsible for the glowing sand or giant artificial moon <laughs> concepts and then just sort of go let's throw this in there and we'll throw some robots and self-driving cars and everything so, else so the idea behind it <laughs> as well is that they're going to get rid of cars completely with this yeah. so so they've got like three levels with that city so the yeah. top level is like ground level yep. so so that's going to be like green area yeah and then the second level underground is going to be like uh um like shops and stuff yeah. and under that you've got all the trains and things and yeah. the, with the idea being that you could be anywhere in that city yeah. within 20 minutes yeah yeah so the the length of the line is basically 170 kilometers so when you have a look at the the way that it's been built as you say it's been built on three three levels mm-hmm. um the subterranean level is essentially just a whole network of tunnels and in those tunnels you have autonomous vehicles um, so the autonomous vehicles will actually be autonomous lorries, autonomous, autonomous delivery yeah. systems, basically, that deliver goods, basically, to the shops up above. The idea for that actually came from Sweden, basically, who are, in, who are doing the same thing, but they're investing $4 billion, not $500 billion. Sweden starts um, everything. Yeah, so, yeah, Sweden's, yeah, the Swedes are quite, quite fun, basically, when it comes to sort of wacky ideas. Mm. But the thing is, you know, when the Swedes said what we want to do is we want to build tunnels under a city... And then we want to have autonomous vehicles that then deliver goods sort of really via elevators up to the shops above. Mm. Everyone went, that's stupid. That's it. Now the KSA do it and sort of pump hundreds of uh, millions of dollars into hundreds of billions of dollars into it and millions of dollars into the marketing. And everyone goes, that's a really great idea. Do you think in places like London, you'll get situations where... As far as the future of transport and cars mm. goes and delivery, yeah. and that, where's, where's that going? So having sat in a load of London traffic this morning, basically it's going nowhere fast, <laughs> um, which actually is one of the things that annoys me about cities. You know, if you again, if you kind of have a look at Elon Musk, one of the things that Elon Musk has been sort of saying really throughout his career, basically is, yeah, sitting in traffic is a giant waste of everyone's lives. Not time, lives, mm. which it kind of is. Um, so when you have a look at TFL, TFL have been uh, spending more and more money and more and more time trying to invest and develop smart, artificially intelligent powered transport solutions, basically that optimise the networks and everything else. When you have a look at street level, you know, the problem that we all know basically with London is it was designed basically for a time when cars basically were really relatively scarce. As opposed, you know, they, it wasn't London wasn't really designed basically for the point in time where everyone has three cars each, mm. you know, including children, etc., etc., etc. So, from a London perspective, you can actually use some of these boring technologies because once you get four tunnels deep, you can't feel vibrations from the tunnels above. So you could actually use something like Mion and the Swedes' system of goods deliveries uh, because. Yeah, we've already got uh, tunnels that the, the tube go through. You could just build a whole variety of new tunnel networks and systems and everything else. And we've got fully autonomous vehicles that are already going through tunnels in Vegas. Again, you know, thanks to sort of Tesla and Musk and gang. But from a transportation perspective, you know, we've got the emergence of semi and fully autonomous vehicles. Um, but you know, one of my clients basically is, uh, is Go Ahead. 
So they do a billion journeys basically around London basically every year. They own most of the trains. They own pretty much the entire bus network. One of the things they said a little while ago basically was, you know, if you actually have a look at the, the, the average London bus, the average use is 30%. So at any one time, basically 30% on average of a bus actually has people in it. And which but then means that 70% of the bus is actually wasted. When you actually have a look at the advent of fully autonomous vehicles along with smart transportation systems, what you can actually do is using CCTV and other, mon- other sort of smart city monitoring solutions, either people can just call, call up these autonomous vehicles on an app, but an AI can then aggregate all that information and say, well, okay, one person in your street, in this street, wants to go somewhere. So it just sends a very small, single-seater, fully autonomous vehicle. Um, however, yeah, how far away is that? Is we've it... got it now. We've got it in Mazda, basically in really? um, Abu Dhabi, basically in the UAE. Yeah, I mean, this stuff, this stuff's here now. Basically, you know, it's they look a little bit funky, but you know, hey, but if these if if these machine learning systems then say, well, you know what, actually, seventeen people in your in that street want to get to somewhere, then it just sends a fully autonomous seventeen seat bus. So with a smart city and smart transportation solution you can send the type of vehicle that is actually needed. So rather than actually having the E3 bus that we have around here sort of going up and down and, you know, it's 90% empty, you know, if I wanted to get into central London, I can either take a personal vehicle, basically, that is a single-seater or two-seater. I could take a... I could I could aggregate my journey, basically, like sort of ride-sharing with lots of other people if I wanted to, and maybe that's cheaper. Um, other solutions, so we've got a different way to optimize the networks using these different technologies. But then in addition to that, uh, we've got Coventry basically building out the world, some of the world's first flying taxi ports. Flying taxis? Yeah. Um, what, so, like hovering around the streets? And... Oh, yeah. So, really? Yeah, so you've got organizations basically like Ehang, Volocopter. Um, you've got Porsche that want to develop a flying taxi. So, And this is the thing, you know, when we start talking about the future of transportation, everyone goes, well, okay, in the future, will we have flying cars? You know, like we saw in the 60s and things. And it's like, no, we won't have flying cars. And the reason why we won't have flying cars is because thanks to sort of exponential technologies, if you think of your common garden DJI drone, you know, it's got a power to weight ratio or a power to weight to lift ratio. Advances in batteries, materials, propulsion systems, control systems and everything else now mean basically that I, you know, on the one hand, I can create a DJI drone that carries a Amazon parcel around the city. Uh, on the other hand, basically, I can have a slightly more powerful one that carries people around. So we won't have flying cars. We will have drones that transport people autonomously. And that's what we're already seeing, basically, thanks to everyone from Aston Martin to Airbus to Boeing to Rolls-Royce to BMW. Audi, basically, has got a flying flying drone. When you have a look at Airbus, Airbus continually talk about what they call urban air mobility vehicles. Um, So these are literally vehicles, basically, that uh, will pick you up from wherever you are. So... And one of that, one of those concepts that they have is, you know, you'll have a vehicle pick you up from wherever you are. That vehicle, which is like a car or just an autonomous pod, that pod will then go to a central station, a little bit like a train station, but it's a flying taxi station. That pod then ends up with rotors being put onto the top of it. So it's a modular design in their case. And that pod now flies, you know, and it can just whiz off wherever you want. 
But when you have a look at sort of flying taxis, we've got the technology already. You've got Sky, basically, which is a hydrogen-powered flying taxi that does 400 kilometers. Um, we've got lithium-ion-powered flying, flying taxis. But you've got to be able to control the, the urban airspace. Yeah, that's the so thing. otherwise they crash into one another. You can't have a whole lot of taxis flying around the no. around skyscrapers no. in London. And so you end up. So on, on the one hand, basically, while flying taxis are very attractive because you can all of a sudden make use of three D space. You know, when we have mm. a look at today's transportation networks like buses, cars, vans, trucks, trains, it's all on one level. It's all two D. Mm. So that's attractive from that perspective. Um, when you have a look at things like Uber Elevate, which got sold recently, because again, a lot of people look at these things and go, well, they're expensive. The cost of a flying taxi at the minute is about a quarter of a million dollars, you know, if you wanted to buy one. But of course, you're not going to buy one, you're going to use it as a service. But the cost of a service, the cost of flying taxi services over in California are typically about 30 bucks a, 30 bucks a ride. But the so, cost. So, so yeah. in California, there are flying taxis. So in Singapore, there are flying taxis. So what, in China, it, there are flying taxis. In Germany, there are flying can we, taxis. Can we just? Yeah. Can we just? Middle break East, down there exactly. are flying taxis. Can we just break down <laughs> yeah. what a flying taxi looks like? If you th- so, so, let's say for example, you take a standard car. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just um, any any kind of standard, say four by four. Uh, if you take the pedals out of it, you take the dashboard out of it, you take basically the steering wheel out of it, you end up basically with a pod which has just got seats in it, right? Like the Jetsons. Yeah, that sort of stuff. So you, what you have is you've just got literally a pod with some seats, maybe some screens for entertainment and everything else in it, and that is it. Now with flying taxis, stick some rotors on top. Um, so, and you know, if you have a look at Volocopter, basically they've got about 16 rotors on the top of their vehicles. Um, mainly because of uh, resilience and failure. Yeah, so if some of the rotors fail, you don't really want to have a load mm. of consumers basically plunging, you know, two thousand feet basically into a skyscraper. You know, sort of like die hard, die hard style. Mm. But it's literally that. So they they aren't very far removed from helicopters. So when do you think realistically you'd be looking at a, a major city like London having? fully autonomous flying public transport like what what sort of time frame are we looking uh so when you have a look at the technology because there's always stages to these things so when you actually have a look at the availability of the technology if you want to go and get into a flying taxi now you can go to a variety of different places um so you've got to have the technology it's got to be accessible so those flying taxis have got to be in the right place you know if you go over to the uae you're in the right place. Go to California, you're in the right place. Singapore, right place. Germany, right place. Although you might have wanted to go to a different place in Germany mm. uh, to experience your flying taxi. So you've got to have the technology. It's got to be accessible. It's got to be affordable because if getting into a flying taxi is a million dollars, you're not going to do it unless you're Jeff Bezos, but then you might as well just go into space. So sort it. Then you need regulation. So I come to I come to a sovereign government and I say, I've got a flying taxi. I can put it into London and it's going to cost people 10 bucks a ride which is kind of what Uber Elevator are already trying to do. The government and the regulators have got to look at it and then go, we approve you and we approve it for use within London. And that's a whole thing. So the Mm. thing that's holding back a lot of flying taxis at the minute is they are still relatively high on a cost per ride basis, but that's actually plummeting. We reckon that by around 2025, with advances in technologies, you'll be able to get the cost of a flying taxi down to the same cost per mile as your conventional petrol-engined car. And then when we have a look at regulators, the UK government has now actually approved a couple of di- different trials, basically particularly up north. Um, so there are a couple of trials that are scheduled for London, basically over the next sort of year or so, mm-hmm. um, but pandemic's taking hold. 
Then, so you've got, you've got your flying taxi, the regulators say, yes, you can use them. Now you need to scale capacity. Now you need to do your marketing, um, but you also need air traffic control systems, you know, because you can't just have these things flying all, all, all over the place. So about three years ago, the CAA, basically the, civil, the UK's Civil Aviation Authority, undertook a program of work to try to figure out, at the moment they manage airspace for say Heathrow, you know, got lots of 747s and A380s flying into Heathrow, but um, the program of work that they put together was, well, as we start seeing the arrival of flying taxis, as well as drone deliveries, how do we manage the airspace? Because in the case of drone deliveries, you're talking about a drone that's 30 centimeters long. In the case of, you know, a flying taxi, you're talking about a car, yeah, let alone a bus. Uh, You're talking about something flying around London that's about the size of a large-ish car. You know, how do we manage this airspace? So there have been quite a number of different air traffic control trials, both in New York, again, Germany, Singapore. So you can kind of get the picture. Anywhere where there is a flying taxi service that is starting up the thing they've got to solve basically is that is is the air traffic control system well producer tristan's actually got a question about cities so you've mentioned the future of cities on earth but what will happen with space travel and, and cities and civilizations out there well, so yeah, so good question. So on the one hand, you know, there's, there's plenty, of, there's plenty of people out there that say we should actually save Earth first. Um, however, if we're not sort of going down that route, let's go and take the billionaires' route. Um, you've got individuals like uh, Elon Musk, really Elon Musk, basically. When we start talking about Mars, much more than any of the other billionaires, who are starting to talk about colonizing Mars. So, for example, with Musk, Musk basically is investing huge sums of money building out what he calls his Big Falcon Heavy, so BFH. It's one of the world's largest reusable rockets. Uh, it's just been dem- they just demonstrated the SN16 block um, successfully. They're doing a low Earth orbit flight, basically from Houston to Hawaii, just to start pulling, you know, just to sort of checking out the technology. But that particular vehicle basically is unique in the fact it launches about 100 tons. So come 2022, Musk wants to actually send around 100 plus tons worth of cargo to the surface of Mars. That will include things like robots and 3D printers. So the robots are based on things like NASA's Razor technology, um, which is R-A-S-S-O-R technology. So the the robots are going to mine the regolith. Uh, They will then sort the regolith out, which is... Mine the the what? So regolith is is like Martian dirt. That's it. It's a fancy space name for dirt. So dirt. Yeah. Um, so the robots are going to mine the dirt, uh, and then they're going to be able to use that dirt to 3D print homes and buildings on Mars. So there's a company called Icon in conjunction with NASA who have been putting together concepts for, for Martian habitats. Some of them look like domes. Other, the other ones look like anthills, so like big termite mounds and everything else. They look sort of quite funky and weird. So he's going to, the plan that he has is he's going to send all of this equipment up to Mars for 2022, build the colony, um, use things like vertical farms, clean meat solutions, because you've either got to take everything with you or you've got to use it all there. Um, and then send colonists up in 2024. Some people have already actually signed up. And uh, the little hang on, f- so sending people to live on Mars in 2024 that's what he wants to do. And actually, you know, when you actually have a look at where he is in the development of his rockets and technologies, he's actually kind of getting there because Starlink, which is his global communications low earth orbit satellite system, it's got about 12,000 satellites, he's using the money from that 
because that will provide connectivity to everybody on the planet. So as opposed to going to Vodafone for your contract, you just go to Starlink. And at the moment, um, Starlink's internet speeds are about 200 megasecond to your phone, about 30, second, 30 millisecond latency for about 99 bucks a month anywhere on the planet. Um, so that'll start disrupting the communications carriers like Vodafone and yeah, EE and all the others basically that we have in the UK. Um, you can't get signal anywhere near Winchester. Um, as, as I found out, the real hard way, continuously. So he's using the money from that to fund his Martian project. They estimate, well, Wall Street, so JP Morgan estimate, that Starlink should be able to generate about $36 billion in revenues itself per year, and that it would actually float if it went IPO in about 2030. On the it should exchange. float yeah, on the stock exchange for about $150 billion. So there's his money to get to Mars. Um, when you start using the BFR and you start refueling in orbit, you lower the cost. So the cost of launching a BFR rocket at the moment is $2 million. 50% of that is fuel. Things that people generally don't know about the BFR is that the fuel it uses is methane. So it's actually carbon neutral, which is insane. Uh, you can use an electrolyzer on Mars to create methane fuel. So you've already got rocket dumps on Mars. You've got your habitats on Mars. You've got your vertical farms on Mars. You've got your clean meat facilities and bioreactors on Mars, which give you your steaks so you can eat really well on Mars. Um, so that'll if, all be there when... When they land. When they land. Yeah, so they literally get to Mars, step out of their BFR rocket in their funky, in their funky red-coloured spacesuits, probably, and uh, just go, here's my new habitat, open the door, close the door and go, I'm not coming out. And then they stream Netflix. Because when you actually have a look at Starlink, Starlink is actually being lined up not just to provide global internet coverage for planet Earth, but also internet space-based communications for Mars and the Moon. And then talking of the Moon and the communications piece, uh, Nokia and Vodafone in, I think it's next year now, because of the uh, pandemic, they want to put a 4G and 5G set of masts on the moon, and inclu including a data center and stuff. So when we start talking about yeah, not living on Earth, the next five years are going to be really interesting. And the cost of launching anything into space, if you compare the cost of launching a kilogram of goods on a space shuttle in 1980 to the cost of launching a goods per kilogram today it's fallen by 99%. So it's now about $2,700 per kilogram. Um, whereas, you know, and you can turn that around on an hourly basis because the rockets are reusable. So, yeah, you could just keep going. Musk wants to get the price of an individual getting to Mars by around 2035 down to $200,000 per ticket. The reason why he's chosen $200 per ticket is because that is the cost of the average American home. And so at that point, people who don't like Earth can go, I can either buy a home on Earth or a one-way ticket to Mars. Life is full of awesome what-ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at UH1.com. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. We've spoken before off here about autonomous hotels. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, so really, yeah, when we have a look at autonomous transportation in general, yeah, if I, take a current, if I take a current vehicle, whether it's a car, whether it's a van, whether it's a truck, doesn't matter what it is, but if I take a current traditional vehicle and I take the steering wheel, the pedals, and the dashboard out, again, I'm left with an empty space inside. Mm. So we can already argue that we see the death of the car. Because what you have is once you've taken all those things out, you've now just got an empty autonomous pod. And then you can fill it with whatever you like. So you can turn that empty space in that pod to into a shop, a mobile GP surgery, or in the case of a Prilly, but over in, again, sort of off the west coast of the US, a fully autonomous, what they call travel suite, an ATS. So it's a fully autonomous hotel suite, but all that has is it's an empty pod that's got a bed, it's got a bathroom, uh, it's got changing areas and everything else that you need, and it's got an entertainment area and desks. You know, in the morning, basically, that empty pod basically could be a school bus, then it could be a grocery delivery van, then it could be a shop in the afternoon, so a sandwich shop. Um, and then at night, basically, when no one's really doing anything, it could be an autonomous hotel room. Shops like the high street could just be mobile, couldn't yeah. they? It could be so, just going around yeah. different places. So, you know, rather than you going to, say, JD Sports... You know, you click an app, JD Sports comes to you. And and then I guess like when it comes to smart houses as well, yeah. if, you, if, you, if you go back to just a normal house and the way it's been built, I guess like the, there must be some crazy technology that's coming into play with, because you're already seeing things like uh, Google, okay, Google yeah. and um, Alexa yeah. and things like that. What, what, are the, what are the next big things in, in houses that are going to make a difference that people are going to go, holy shit? This is it. so. Pro- so, probably the biggest thing is actually going to be things like uh, some of the smart speakers, but not necessarily in the way that people think. So, you know, when we talk about smart speakers today, you typically think Alexa, which has probably now set loads of them off. Um, you think that? Don't say that too I'm just going to say yeah. A. Yeah. yeah. Just, uh, you think about the one beginning with A, and you just think, well, you know, I can talk to it, and I say, turn the radio on, turn the radio off, do whatever it happens to be. But for example, basically, those, the speakers that are in those speaker systems can listen to everything that goes on in your house. Mm. Um, they can listen to your voice. They can figure out that you're getting ill. And then that thing, starting with A, can say, I sense that your voice is a bit gravelly. I think that you're actually getting a little bit ill. Um, would you like me to book an appointment with the doctor for you? Uh, I can have him on call now if you want. Mm. So by the way that I talk, the language that I use, the tone that I use, basically the pace, of, the pace that I talk at could signal that I'm depressed, I've got dementia as a futurist, that kind of goes with the territory, ah, you know, all these sorts of things. So one of the biggest changes that we could actually see from a smart home perspective is these devices actually getting intelligent enough, basically where on the one hand they become health, more health-centric devices. Yeah. But in addition to that, you know, we've got, when we look at the Internet of Things, they can listen to the vibrations in the house. So they know basically that you run the dishwasher basically at this particular time. They can then start pushing different types of adverts for that and everything else. 
I suppose basically the, the, the next biggest innovation basically when we start talking about smart home is really things like what we call generalized robots. So Samsung have been showing these off basically really for about the past year. Um, they've got a concept robot uh, that will actually lay your table, clear your table, serve you wine. Uh, it'll fold your laundry. It'll load your dishwasher, unload your dishwasher uh, and even start doing some of the cooking for you. Mm. It's ironically, basically, when yeah. So I did the, the the KX50 report for Samsung, which has a look at life in 2069. Samsung ran a little survey because it was their 50, 50th birthday, and they wanted to look for another 50 years ahead to their centenary. And uh, when they asked people, you know, out of all these sort of futuristic things, you know, what would you like to see first? Everyone or the vast majority of people answered a robot that does my housework for me. So guess what they unveiled? It says. Uh, of yeah. course, yeah. So, so that's probably the next large one, but they are expensive still, etc. Et oh, I bet they're expensive. Yeah, more than twenty quid an hour. Oh yeah. <laughs> if we, one of the things that I think it like it's one of the saddest yeah. things about just being a human is, mm. well, you know, call me sheltered, is when you have a grandparent mm. or a parent, and you have to put them into a home. Yeah. Do you think there is going to be a stage where there's technology that stops that from happening. Mm. Uh, on the one hand, basically, we've got technologies that can already identify whether or not people are falling over. Um, so We've already got that. Yeah, so we've already got that. So yeah. that can then send an alert saying the elderly person at this address basically has fallen over, go and sort of tend to them. Um, secondly, we've got techno- yeah, smart, smart sort of kitchen technologies, basically, that can tell whether or not people who have dementia, for example have actually left the stove on, left the gas on, you know, those kinds of things. Um, secondly, we've got telehealth, basically where GPs are able, GPs and health practitioners are able to check up on elderly people in a five-minute conversation, you know, just over video conferencing. So typically when you think about it, the traditional visit, you know, if, if a care worker actually went to visit an elderly patient, historically, basically that would, from the time that they left their house to the time they kind of got back to their house, uh, would take about two hours. So mm. now using telehealth technologies, you can actually check in on elderly people to see how they're doing. It's not quite the same as face-to-face, admittedly, but it takes five minutes. So you improve productivity and all that kind of stuff. In addition to that, basically when we actually start having a look at um, helping people around the home, basically you've got a whole variety of new technologies that, that help automate the home in different ways. Mm. You've also in Japan, so Japan really leans very heavily on robots. Basically you've got personal care robots like Pepper where the elderly can talk to the robot. And as we start seeing advances in artificial natural, artificial intelligence and conversational artificial intelligence, one of the thoughts that a lot of people are having are, well, robot companions, could elderly people talk to robots? You know, they'd probably want to talk more to their families, but you know, if the families basically aren't around for whatever reason, then increasingly the use of artificial intelligence means that elderly people can tell, yeah. can tell a robot how they're feeling. But also, we're starting to see it's the rise so of telepsychiatry as well, which is exactly the same thing, where you talk to apps like Wobot, which now has over 2 million conversations a day, and you just say, you know, I'm feeling a bit upset. And the AI will come back going, well, you know, why? And you talk things through. So when you have a look at telehealth, when you have a look at telepsychiatry technologies, when you have a look at connected home technologies, mm. and then also when you start thinking about, uh, you know, looping in future of transportation, there's a lot of things that are coming in to help the elderly because if I can no longer drive, but I'm at home, yeah. So let's say, for example, I've you know I'm I'm very old, 
Um, it's very difficult for me to actually, you know, I can't get into a car to drive because, you know, I've lost particular functions or whatever it happens to be. You call up a fully autonomous vehicle and we actually did this over in Greenwich and all of a sudden go out and about again. Other technologies that we actually have as well, um, I can push artificial intelligence thanks to Emerald, which is a startup out of MIT, to your Wi-Fi router. I can turn your Wi-Fi router in an elderly person's home into the equivalent of a radar or sonar device. And that can scan the room. You know, so if you think, literally, if you think about radar, you know, it's just electromagnetic sort of beams basically reflected off things. The system acts like a little bit of like a sort of radar device and it can identify your emotions when you're sitting down or standing up or whatever it happens to be because essentially it's scanning your face but it's using Wi-Fi signals to do that at a millimeter level accuracy. It can tell where you are in the house. It can tell what you're up to. But from an elderly perspective, um, we can use this same technology to identify an elderly person's gait, the way they walk. Now, on the one hand, basically that we can then use that information to figure out if they're actually at risk of, fa of falling over. But we can also use that information to tell whether or not they've actually had their meds in the morning. And this is before we get to smart pills and all that sort of stuff. Because if, if people have had particular medications, if you have Parkinson's or what have you, um, you walk slightly differently. Uh, if you had your medication in the morning, you walk normally. Well, I say normally, but you, know, you walk in one way. Mm. If you haven't had your medication, you walk in another way. These AI Wi-Fi routers basically can actually pick that up. And then they can notify the doctor or they can send you, your, your family an alert saying, by the way, Brian hasn't had his meds. When it comes to the technology within a home, there must be some some more sort of sinister sides to it as well when it comes to like how the conspiracy theorist would say the government could be listening to you. Yep. Are there any kind of things that you're concerned about or any things that you think mm. will blow Alistair's minds about like how how like covert yeah. that they're, they're doing that? Anything that's digital, anything that's a sensor, if it can read if it can capture information. If it can transmit information that can be analyzed better, then you can do all kinds of things. So, for example, using the Wi-Fi router, I can actually surveil you in your own home doing whatever it is you're actually doing. The government um, could do that to me the right The government now. could do that now, yeah. Things like smart TVs, basically, you know, we actually had a variety of companies actually spying on people via their smart TVs. If, companies were doing that. Yeah, companies were doing that. There was one, forget the name, um, but it was quite one of the large ones about three years ago. Basically, they got told off because they were actually spying on people. And uh, they were like, "Oh, really? sorry about that." Um, you know, oh, they were collecting all. Yeah, they were kind. Of, they were collecting all kinds of information on people because they were using the speakers in the TV to listen into what people were doing. So they knew that you'd run your dishwasher and your washing machine at this particular time of the day. They'd know when you were in. They could hear the door close. So they'd know when you went in, when you were out. Uh, you know, all this kind of stuff. And that's a TV. Other things basically we can do is um, I can hijack stuff. So, for example, we've got the use of. If you have a look at baby cams um, and CCTVs basically within homes, whether it's inside homes or outside homes, uh, we can hack CCTV or camera systems basically we can spy on you. So Who's doing that? Oh, but, so, <laughs> uh, so a bunch of people basically were recently caught uh, yeah. hacking into the, into the webcams on laptops. For example, yeah, doesn't yeah. just have to be a CCTV That's old camera. School. The people have been doing That's that for school. a long time. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And um, you know what they would do is basically they'd be recording children in their bedrooms, and then they, oh. in one particular case, they were sending that straight through to pedophile networks on the dark web. So oh. that's nasty. 
and that's where sort of GCHQ and signals intelligence um, sort of um, then come in basically to kind of take those guys out. So you can do that kind of nasty stuff. If you've got a smart fridge, you've got a smart washing machine, you've got a smart whatever it happens to be, smart kettle. Um, we actually now have hackers that are hacking smart fridges. But what they're then doing, and a lot of people wonder why the fridges are running hot, the hackers have hacked into the computing power of smart fridges to mine cryptocurrency. So, well, yeah. What about, you've told me about plants. Yeah. <laughs> plants being turned into yeah. almost like technological weapons, like the, the normal house plant. Yeah. How, how so, does that work? What's okay, so, so by using gene ed, different gene editing tools, basically like, for example, CRISPR, which is one of the world's most powerful gene editing tools, we can do all kinds of things to the genomes of any living thing. So whether it's plants, animals, humans, whatever it happens to be. On the one hand, I can change the genome of a plant so that it becomes more sensitive to particular chemicals in the soil, which I can then use to identify landmines. Because when landmines get old, they start leaking explosive nitrates and all that sort of stuff. And I can pick those up in my, in my landmine detecting plant because it'll change color. The plant changes color or it flowers, but mm. you, know, you can do a variety of different things. And I can see that all the yellow plants are next to landmines. Therefore, I can go and blow the landmines up. Other things that I can do is I can use gene editing tools uh, to get spinach to email you when it's feeling stressed. Spinach. Spinach, yeah. To they email they me. chose spinach. So the researchers, again, in the US basically chose spinach because it's a little bit easier to work with. Um, you can also use it to create graphene, as it turns out. But who knew that spinach basically were not just healthy and good for you, but they could actually email you to let you know when they're stressed and they could be used to create future terahertz uh, computer chips, you know. Handy little plant, okay. spinach. We do spinach, that? we're, we're talking about the same spinach Spinach, here. as in go to Sainsbury's, buy some spinach, yeah. that spinach. The green spinach that has leaves that you buy from a supermarket, spinach, that spinach. Okay. Just to be clear. Cool. Um, so, however, um, if you're DARPA, basically then, you know, you're sort of looking at this landmine experiment uh, and thinking, well, okay, we've got all these powerful gene editing tools, so what else can we actually do with these tools? Um, now... You can, use different, you can use these gene editing tools to tweak the genomes of plants so they become more sensitive to chemicals, but also become more sensitive to different parts of the electromagnetic spectrum. So whether that's light, whether it's gamma rays, whether it's X-rays, or whether it's radio, radio waves. So over in the US, basically, they've now been using gene editing to create plants that are more sensitive to radio waves. And then you think, well, pfft, why? You know, that's a bit weird and who cares? If you're the US military, you can now use those plants as what we call a living sensor network to pick up radio waves from wherever they're coming from, whether they're coming from an enemy tank, whether they're coming from the Russian embassy, whether they're coming from Little Miss Miggins pie shop around the corner, and you can then transmit that back to a US listening post. So now what we have is we now have the concept of what we call living sensor networks. The U.S. military are also using that same technology on marine organisms because you can now use gene editing to tweak the genomes of different plants in the ocean so that they pick up and sense pressure. Now, if you sense pressure and then they report it, if you sense pressure... That could actually be from a submarine, a nuclear submarine, 
so you can grow plants to email you and to use as a weapon. Yeah. Well, you know, to detect nuclear submarines. That's if that's what you want to do. I mean, you know. You talk about, like, changing the genomes and stuff. And I remember on our last chat, we also talked about uh, inserting, like, silicon microchips and stuff. Mm. Vaccines. Yeah. You must have heard the conspiracy theories about about the government inserting microchips into vaccines. First of all, is that possible? Could Has it been done? (laughs) And second of all, what are your... What are your thoughts yeah. on um, whether that yeah. is, is a so, thing? So when you have a look at how a vaccine is delivered, let's face it, it's a, it's a liquid that's shot into the arm. Now, if you, wanted to, if you wanted to deliver a computing device via a vaccine, that computing device would have to be incredibly small. The smallest computing devices that we actually have at the moment basically are called micromotes. Um, they are about a tenth the size of a grain of rice. So if you tried to put one of those, basically it just wouldn't come out the needle. Yeah. While we actually do have virus-sized computers on the drawing board, thanks to Caltech, and we do actually have a way to push computing systems, so that's communications, that's memory, that's CPU, down basically to, incre- yeah, to sort of molecular sizes. We haven't got that technology yet. The closest that we've got to the conspiracy theorists' uh, sort of point of view is... And the Pentagon really shot themselves in the foot with this one. Um, there was a there was an outbreak. There was a COVID outbreak basically on the USS I think Theodore Roosevelt, and about a thousand sailors ended up getting COVID. Um, so in response to that, a couple of months later, DARPA, along with the US military and the US Pentagon, developed a computer chip that can be inserted under the skin that they call an engine warning light. So, for example, what this computer chip would do is it would monitor your blood and it would actually pick up different biomarkers in your blood, COVID being one of those, and then it would actually send a signal to a smartphone or to a central command system saying, by the way, this person's got COVID, you know, isolate them. So those are called biochips. Um, those are real. Basically, they're already being used in the US military. Um, but when it comes to using vaccines to insert computing devices or anything, basically, that can be regarded as any form of computer, computational or communications device into the human body, not there yet. And the sort of interest in, when we talk about misinformation, disinformation, there was a study in the US recently, 65% of all COVID misinformation has come from 12 accounts. 12 Twitter, 12 user accounts on Facebook and Twitter. Is that right? Yeah. Which then brings us to the fact that as we see increasingly powerful technologies being delivered, being developed and deployed, the power of the individual gets more powerful. Because now, if you can find the right levers to pull, one person can that's, that's spread an idea to billions of other, with the billions of the rest of us on the planet, then all you need is to hone your message in such a way saying... The government is using Nano yeah. Swarm 3 technology from the University of California to read your thoughts, you know, go and Well, know, the vaccines go are going to kill you. The vaccines are going to give you blood clots. So the vac- yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, we've got that. But there were, in development, there were vaccines that actually hacked the human genome. Um, there's a new COVID trial that's been tested on human cells in a Petri dish. And again, it's using this powerful gene editing technology called CRISPR. But what this CRISPR technology does is uh, it changes the DNA in your cells and makes it so that coronavirus can't replicate itself. There's a basis of this. About three to four years ago, researchers 
use gene editing technology to create E. coli bacteria that were resistant to every known virus on Earth. Because when viruses replicate, they have to reach the end of the DNA chain or strand, and there's something called a telomere. When they hit the end of the telomere, they go, it's a little bit like a, a command going, when you get to this point on the DNA strand, replicate yourself. Um, so by mucking around with tel telomeres and by removing a telomere, the virus never ever gets to the point where it reaches the, the command signal to replicate. Right, okay. So the use of CRISPR technology to create vaccines that modify the cellular machinery, if we move cautiously away from modifying DNA, mm. um, is actually being put forward as a future vaccine for future COVID outbreaks and future pandemics. And it also worked on the alpha variant. Conspiracies are generally based on a single grain of truth somewhere. You know, someone mm. has something. Um, so this thing exists. And then you start spinning a story going, someone has taken this you know, powerful technology and they're using it for nefarious purposes because they all hate you. Mm. so you end up in that kind of and that's the sort of the, the the weird the weird world that we live in of disinformation misinformation conspiracy theories yeah um etc 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 i have more than enough stuff based to make everyone go nuts so do you think do you think that's gonna that technology is going to be the end of covid that's, um, that 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 could end covid so so that technology looks like it could because that mm. same technology was used by a chinese researcher about two years ago in 20, 20 sort of early 2019 mm. he used CRISPR gene editing technology on two unborn twins in China in what's been widely criticized as a wholly immoral experiment he used that technology to genetically engineer these two unborn twins at the point at that point so that they would no longer catch particular diseases like meningitis and HIV and they're actually resistant. And now he's in jail. But this is where, when you have a look at these technologies, what we have is we have these increasingly powerful technologies that allow us to do increasingly powerful things that allow us to end disease in increasingly weird ways. And while we have those technologies now, the regulators go, what the f is that? And they have no idea how to regulate it. Mm. You've got moral concerns, ethical concerns, and everything else, which then means that these kinds of, say, for example, the, the, the COVID-19 gene editing sort of technology you know, vaccine, um, yeah, that won't see the light of day, basically, for 10 to 20 years, not because we don't have the technology, not because we can't scale it or deploy it, not because it can't be manufactured affordably, and, 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 not because it doesn't work, but because of regulations and liability. What about the reverse? So... Hmm. Isn't there? A, 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 do you think there's a danger of other viruses coming back, like different things other than COVID? Like, on, de extincting a virus. De extincting, de -extincting a, vi a so virus. So bringing back an old virus. Oh well, I mean, imagine, imagine basically if you could actually de extinct something like the horsepox or uh, smallpox, which has already been done. Really? Yeah. I would line you up for that one. <laughs> um, so yeah, so three years ago, a bunch of Canadian researchers took one hundred thousand dollars. They took customized DNA from a company called Twist Bioscience, um, which they were able to order off eBay and that kind of stuff. They took the, gen the genomic sequence of the extinct horsepox virus, 
When was the horse pox? Is that was that? Like I was made. It, it, no, it was like I don't quite know. But I said don't quite me. But um, so like eighties, nineties, probably that sort of thing. But it's oh, it's okay. been a while ago. You know, smallpox yeah, yeah, yeah. was like the two thousands, and horsepox yeah, gotcha. was a bit before then. So, um, so what they did is they took the geno- genome sequence, basically for the horsepox virus, customized DNA from eBay, and a hundred thousand dollars, and they de-extincted it. Now, what I mean, just to be clear, by de-extincted is they bought a, vi- a deadly virus that has an R rating of, say, 2 to 3, which makes coronavirus actually look not that transmissible. And they bought it back to life by re-engineering it. They then took that to the World Health Organization, because this is where everyone goes, we yeah, get load of bollocks. Firstly, go and have a look on Google, go and have a look at the peer review paper and everything else. However, the most interesting thing for me... Uh, was they then took it to the World Health Organization and a variety of, should we say, senior le- yeah, senior political leaders and said, just to let you know, uh, we've de-extincted this highly contagious, highly deadly horsepox virus. We've done it with this. We could probably do it with smallpox. We just want to make you aware so that you can have a point of view on it and you can do something to stop it from actually happening and this being turned into a bioweapon uh, by terrorists in the future. Bearing in mind that it was $100,000 a couple of years ago, it'll be about $10,000 now because everything gets cheaper. And the World Health Organization wrote in its official public report, they said, um, what struck us was that it, didn't, it took people with relatively low skills uh, which maybe is the research you're going, hang on, it's a bit unfair. Um, <laughs> Come on, low just, skills uh, with few yeah. resources and a small amount of money to de-extinct a potentially deadly contagious virus. Jesus, but consuming. even though the World Health Organization put that into their public report and people can go and find it and see it for themselves and all that sort of stuff, no one's done anything about it. So this then leads us to this little sort of, uh, this little segue. So far, the the global COVID-19 pandemic, it is estimated, has cost the global economy and people, in terms of wages and everything else, over $40 trillion. If you want to start the next global pandemic, give us 100 bucks in an eBay account. Well, there you go. We're fucked. But if you want to learn more about how fucked we are... Where can people find more information uh, on you, Matthew Griffin? Well, if you're worried basically about life on Earth, then you can always go to Mars. That's it. Jeff Bezos basically and, uh, and Elon Musk basically will be selling tickets for a couple of million dollars each. Yeah, when you start having a look at him, you know, everyone sort of said, you know, maybe he recently went to space because space is the new billionaire's playground because they're trying to escape Earth. Maybe that's the reason why. Maybe they're listening to the podcast. Um, but in terms of finding more information, go to, I've got a couple of websites, so fanaticalfuturist.com. Uh, 311institute.com there's loads of free stuff and everything else Uh, there's thousands of articles hundreds of emerging and exponential technologies going all the way out to 2070 I've got videos on YouTube if you want to know about the future of this that and everything else Um, and uh, yeah there's loads in the meantime go and uh, put your tinfoil hat on (laughs) yeah that won't protect you from a uh, de-extincted virus (laughs) thank you very much for listening don't forget to hit subscribe on whatever platform you get your podcast on and check us out on youtube as well 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 